decided to go ahead and come down here and uh, join you folks. Invite some of those folks on the back rows to come on up. You don't have to sit so far away from me. I'm not going to hurt you. Um, <clears throat> always find it interesting that people who come to see a show or they, you know, ball games, the seats always in the front are the most valuable ones, the ones that are in demand. Uh, in church, it's always in the back. It's amazing. Uh, let me just say um, before I begin our message today that um, I appreciate your prayers uh, as Joyce and I fly Wednesday, Lord willing, uh, to Chicago, uh, where we look forward to really celebrating our Christmas this year uh, with all of our family, our entire family, gathering there for our son uh, John's graduation as he earns two uh, master's degrees, uh, one in systematic theology, which he can now way over my head with his understanding of that subject matter, and uh, also uh, a degree in intercultural studies. And so uh, we appreciate your prayer. We've, all the grandkids are going to be there. It's going to be a great time. We we look forward to it. All right, let me just uh, open in prayer, and then we'll look into the scriptures. Heavenly Father, what a joy it is to have your word, not just before us, but your word that can be in us, your word that takes part of us, your word that shapes us and molds us, your word that imparts life to us, your word that changes us. So Lord, by your Holy Spirit today, would you illumine us and make your word come alive to us that we might see and understand some of the wonders of your gifts to us. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Have you ever considered how many gifts that were given last year about this time have already been abandoned? Some are broken. Uh, some are probably the kind that don't fit anymore, if you know what I'm talking about. Uh, some are maybe replaced with, as I've said earlier, things that are newer or the better version of that particular item. And let's be honest, some gifts are short-lived. They just don't last long. Now, and as we know, some toys don't make it past the week of Christmas, sadly enough. But a little insight here. I uh, hate to let the secret out of the bag, but there are some parents who have been known to somehow, quote-unquote, lose the batteries of toys that are noisy and with bright, shining lights flashing. Somehow those batteries somehow get misplaced. Those toys don't seem to work too long. Well, this morning we're going to continue this series as we look at God and consider Him as the one who is the greatest gift giver. As we think about God in that way, think about His gifts. His gifts have lasting value. His gifts have enduring value eternal benefits. His gifts are just what His children really need. They're not useless and unnecessary. Actually, you think about His gifts are so helpful and necessary for us as we navigate through this, the twists and the turns of this fallen world in which we live. As we said last week, God gives us so generously and with such delight the gifts of wisdom and grace and and even a new identity. This morning I want to explore a unique gift that God delights to give, a gift that never expires, 
a gift that can never be lost, a gift that is never becomes irrelevant as long as we live in this world. The gift I have in mind is the Holy Spirit. And so if you have your Bible, I want you to turn uh, to the book of Ephesians, if you would. Make your way there, Ephesians chapter 1. And I want us to consider three benefits of God's gift that gives and gives and gives again. It is indeed the gift of the Spirit of God. One of the struggles that some of us face in the Christian life is the struggle of assurance, or lack of it, really. And some of us ask ourselves at certain times in our life, am I really saved? Am I really a child of God? Does God really, really love me and accept me and has really adopted me forever? I would say Satan loves to sow the seeds of doubt in our minds. He really relishes the, the idea of questioning God's promises. Satan loves to encourage the children of God to hold on to various suspicions about God. And those suspicions oftentimes happen to us when we're tempted to distrust God as we walk through those difficult times in life, when we're distressed, when we're grieved, when we've suffered loss, when our heart truly is broken. It seems to me that those moments of time, we are vulnerable. There's been perhaps a tragic death of someone that you love. There's a, a marriage that comes unraveled. There's all sorts of difficulties and sorrow, pain, loss, financial collapse that happens in life sometimes, sadly enough. Undue suffering. It seems to me that at moments like this, we need assurance. Assurance that God does not abandon us, and He will not abandon His children. That He will indeed never leave us to fend for ourselves. Now, when it comes to whether or not we are a Christian and whether we have assurance or not, it seems to me that an unbeliever will respond to a situation like that, oftentimes with a sense of frustration and anger. He will turn away from God, or at least his concept of God, and he certainly will never turn to God in any kind of, of true, humble adoration. But a believer, it seems to me, according to Galatians 4.6, where we read, God has sent forth His Holy Spirit into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So that, that's the, that we're told there that the Spirit of God has been given to us by God, to every true believer, and that that Spirit is crying out, Abba, Father. And so therefore it seems that God's Spirit, given to every child of God, will help encourage us to join with Him, enabling us as a Christian even in our darkest hour, we will run into the arms of our loving Heavenly Father and say, Abba, Father, Dada. It's a, it's a cry that says, we are desperately in need of help. We are pouring our heart to, out to you for help. It seems to me that's the difference between a, a Christian and a non-Christian. A Christian is a someone, if you want to know if you have assurance of your faith, is that really where you turn, in, even in your darkest moments? And now in Ephesians 1, I'm just adding some further thoughts here as Paul lays this foundation stones for assurance. 
and for true lasting joy in the Christian life. As he reminds the, the people of that church there in Ephesus that God has blessed them and blessed all of God's people with so many gifts. Here are these people who live in the shadow of this very, very impressive building in the town of Ephesus. It was at the time the Temple of Diana, which was at Looking back on it now, historically speaking, one of the seven great wonders of the ancient world. So impressive with gold and, and massive columns and huge dimensions to this temple. And jewels that have been embedded into these columns, 160-some columns around there. And uh, celebrating this, this uh, goddess Diana. And yet he's reminding these Christians, listen, you don't, you don't worship in any kind of fancy temple like that. Wherever little homes that you're meeting in, you nonetheless are enjoying eternal riches in Christ. Don't feel like you're second rate. And so he goes and reminds them another gift that, he, that they are, have been given, and that's in verses 13 and 14 of chapter 1 in, in Ephesians, page 1390 in the Pew Bible. There we read, Having believed, you were sealed in Christ with the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of God's glory. He says a lot there, but what he's saying, of course, is that at the time in which Paul wrote, it was customary for the moving of transportation of goods uh, to have a seal identifying who owns these goods. And at the time, they would perhaps have a sack of uh, maybe some grain or something, and they, they have melted wax, and they have put inside on, into that melted wax a seal from a ring, perhaps, and that identifies this belongs to so-and-so. And therefore, as it's shipped, we know it belongs to him. Same thing with clay jars. They would put all kinds of things in clay jars, whether it's olive oil or wine or whatever, and they'd be shipping those around. By the way, they're finding those in the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, this Bob Ballard guy, he, he, he's the one that found the Titanic. He goes and discovers that when you find this litter, there's a, like a line of litter of these, of these little clay pots that they threw overboard after, I guess, they helped themselves to a couple of the you know, wine jugs on the way over. They throw them overboard, and they find these things. Well, you can find seals in these jugs indicating to whom they belong. Just like when you used to, uh, years ago, used to, uh, I'm showing my age here, uh, with the Coke bottles, right? You'd find who they belonged to, or milk bottles. They always identified who they belonged to. Similarly, I've, uh, over the years, used an embosser to identify the books of my library. It's a little gadget that has two parts. There's a top part where a, uh, a seal uh, has the indentation coming outward, and then there's a part on this side where it receives that image and you crimp it together and it makes the page permanently show from the library of Mark B. Musser. The problem is when I try to thin out my library, I've got this big massive uh, indicator as to who this book still belongs to. Unless you rip the page out, uh, it, it shows it's always going to be something associated with me. Now, what is the point here? We're under the first point. The Holy Spirit is given to provide assurance. And so when it comes to a seal, as he talks here about the Holy Spirit, the seal is the proof of ownership. Holy Spirit is given to us to prove that as believers, we permanently belong to God. 
God's Spirit is like a seal, and that gift He gives to us through the Holy Spirit is assurance. We need not be filled with doubt and uncertainty. We need to not be wondering if God really loves us, if He will really love us forever. We need not wonder, are we really your children, God? Can we still call you Father? Again, I would say the role of the Holy Spirit helps us. Romans 8, verse 16 says, The Spirit of God bears witness with our spirit that we are what? The sons of God, the children of God. The gift of God's Spirit is every true believer is God's way of stamping on us. When you have the gift of Spirit, it's as if God stamps on us, you belong to me. You're mine. That's what the Spirit's saying. You're mine. And the Holy Spirit also assures us, according to Paul here in Ephesians chapter 1, that we're never going to be cut out of the inheritance God has for his children. The inheritance is something you will take part in and receive. It says in Ephesians 1.14, the Holy Spirit is given as a pledge of our inheritance. Now, pledge here, the word there, arabone, means a down payment. So something has been put down, indicating this is a, a promise that I'm going to come back and finish uh, this whole process and take the item uh, as my own. So I think thought back years ago when I put a down payment on an engagement ring, uh, when I had uh, all sorts of dreams and hopes and, and longings for my uh, girlfriend at the time to uh, enter into engagement, I went to a jeweler, and at the time I picked out a diamond all by itself, and, uh, you know, all the CCC, all the cut clarity, whatever. And then you pick out your setting. And so I picked that out. And then I plunked down some big bucks. I was like, man, this stuff is expensive. So it's, it, I put the money down. And then he gives me a piece of paper saying, okay, you were the one who is the one that should expect to come back and pay the rest and get this ring. So when I came back, waited a week, pull up to this place, my day off. He comes back with those jeweler envelopes. You ever seen those things? It comes with an envelope, and he opens it up and dumps out the contents right there on that black mat there. And it wasn't an emerald necklace. It wasn't sapphire earrings. What is it? I showed him the piece of paper, which was my down payment, and he pulls out and pours out, shows me the ring in its final form. Now, what's the point here? The point is that the Holy Spirit is the guarantee that one day, if we are believers, our bodies are going to be fully redeemed. The work that God has begun in us, He will complete it one day. And that we are fully assured that we will enjoy the blessedness of being in the presence of Christ and enjoying the new heavens and the new earth in great glory. That's the inheritance. It's not based on our performance. It's not based on on how well we are doing in this and this and this and this area of my life. No, it's based on what Christ has paid. It's based on how Christ has purchased us. And it's guaranteed because the Spirit of God has been given to every true believer. No matter how much you suffer in this world, my friend, as a follower of Jesus, the Holy Spirit guarantees that you belong to God and that you are a joint heir with Christ. No matter what. I get an amen? Okay. When you move closer, you're supposed to be a little more interactive. See, that's the way it's supposed to work. 
Point number two, Holy Spirit's given to provide power. This is pretty obvious, but I think it's something helpful to go over again. And as I thought about it, one of the wonderful evidences of the truthfulness of Christianity is to see the dramatic change that took place in the disciples of Jesus from that time period of leading up to and including the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And then there's this gap period. Well, what was going on at that point between that and the resurrection? They were a people who could easily be described. I think you would agree with me. They were hesitant, cautious, confused, fearful, and intimidated by their enemies. Now, am I exaggerating? I don't think so. That's true. You read the text. They knew the extent of the political power in place at that time, the military power of the Romans who were, again, looking over uh, the town of the, the, the uh, country of Israel. And they knew that that power could be wielded over them at any moment to bring great and severe persecution over them. And it's interesting that once Jesus was raised from the dead, once they saw him and realized, wow, he is alive, then what happened? Jesus promised them and then fulfilled the promise of the resurrection of, of, of his ascension and then the gift of the Holy Spirit, Acts 2. And then all of a sudden their response to these threats, their response to these acts of intimidation didn't seem to faze them much at all. Look at Acts 4 in your Bible. Acts 4, page 1298. Here these religious authorities have arrested Peter, they've arrested John, they've sort of taken them and said, listen here, uh, we're telling you once and for all, knock it off. We don't want to hear any more about this Jesus the Messiah and the resurrection from the dead and all those kind of things. Stop speaking in the name of Jesus. That's what they were told. Now, go a year or two before or even a couple of weeks or months before this, uh, this particular thing occurred, I'm sure they would have what? They would have backed down. They would have acquiesced. Okay, okay, we got what you're saying. But in this instance, they gathered with their fellow believers. Look at verse 31. They gathered for prayer, and we read that when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. Boldness. Verse 33. With great power, the apostles were giving witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, it seems to me that this, this incident is another illustration or reminder of the way the Holy Spirit empowers His people for service. First of all, we're to admit that we need help. Do you ever feel like you're there in life where you say, wow, I need some help here. I am struggling. I am not about to handle this too well on my own. And so the people of God there, those disciples, admitted their need to help, and they humbled themselves and prayed, admitted that they were afraid, admitted that they struggled sometimes with intimidation, yes. But when it comes to sharing the gospel, it's clear that they chose not to try to carry out ministry in their own strength, in their own abilities. They shared their fears, they shared their struggles in the context of other believers, of like precious faith. 
To me, that's another reminder of the, the local church, the body of believers who have identified themselves as the people of God, committed themselves as those who are committed to each other and to following Christ in a public profession. And they've come under the authority of the leaders of that church. They gather together and they what? They admit that they are struggling, that they need help, that they, they, they're praying for each other in these areas. And notice what they're asking God to do. Prayed that God would grant them as the bondservants of Christ, they may speak your word with all confidence. Verse 29. Speak your word with all confidence. It's interesting. It, it's not just an, a one-time example of that happening in the Scriptures. I find it interesting that the Apostle Paul is the same way, same pattern. Here's the Apostle Paul asking for other believers to pray for him. We read uh, in Ephesians 6, Paul says, I'm praying that utterance, you pray for me that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. What's he saying? He's saying, there are times when I'm tempted to say, I don't think I'm going to stir up any trouble in here. I don't think I'm going to make any waves here. I think I'm just going to let that one slide. No, he's praying that God would give him boldness. Why? Because he's already been beaten and arrested and stoned. And it was a temptation to say, I'm going to back off. I don't want to have to go through that anymore. But he's saying, help me to be still bold and have courage to be outspoken to proclaim the gospel. That kind of boldness and outspokenness comes from where? The Holy Spirit. You say, I don't see that happening in my life so much. Well, let's try to figure out the connections between those. I would just say again, the Holy Spirit empowers believers to be confident, not in themselves, but in Christ. To be confident in the gospel, not in our ability to speak, not in having all the answers that we need for all the questions we're going to have people ask us, but power in the gospel is what they're confident of. So that Paul would say later to the people of, in Thessalonica for chapter 1 there of that book, chapter 2 I believe it is, his confidence is not in his technique, it's in the power of the gospel where he says, you received the word of God's message, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Now let me just say this, we should never assume that God's Spirit will empower any of us with boldness if we are seeking to witness or be on mission for Christ and we are refusing to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit, the clear teaching of Scripture in some area of our life, and that we are not conforming our life to holy habits. In other words, if we are grieving the Holy Spirit, we dare not think that we're going to have a lot of power to be bold witnesses. You say, well, where do you get this idea of grieving the Spirit? Ephesians 4.30. Ephesians 4.30 says, Do not grieve the Spirit of God by whom you were sealed. So it's the Holy Spirit, obviously, is going to be mourning. He's going to be grieving and sad if we refuse, in that instance there in Ephesians 4, to forgive other people who have offended us. If we're going to harbor resentment, if we're going to be a person whose heart is, is closed and we're angry at people and we won't forgive them and refuse to do so, then that, in a sense, is grievous to the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is saying the gospel is all about God forgiving you. <laughs> How are you going to be then 
have power and courage and boldness to speak the gospel to somebody else if you are grieving the Spirit in how you're dealing with other people around you. And so here what I'd like to suggest then is if we're to know power and be those who are filled with a sense of courage and boldness with the gospel is that we need to be careful we're not stiff-arming the Holy Spirit. You know what stiff-arming is, right? When a fullback has the football and he's running, he's allowed to have his other arm, and one, one hand's got the football, he's got the other arm pushing whatever the defender is away from him so he can't really be grabbed and pulled down, right? Stiff arm. Are we stiff arming the paraclete, the one who's called alongside? Some area in our life that we refuse to deal with, we know the Lord has been dealing with us, and we know it's something that's on the radar, but we just keep pushing aside. May I urge you to deal with that so that you could then be courageous, be filled with the Spirit, and know power in sharing Christ with those around us. Third idea of the gift of the Holy Spirit is that the Holy Spirit is provided to everyone who believes in Christ. Here I'd like to turn to a passage in John 7. I had so many thoughts of where I wanted to go in this sermon, but I just couldn't get away from this text. John 7 fascinating text of scripture in which Jesus speaks about the remarkable invitation that he is now going to extend so widely there while he was in Jerusalem prior to his crucifixion. It's actually during the festival of booths in which they sometimes would have these little temporary little tents that they would build, put them on top of their houses maybe, and uh, they celebrate for a number of days uh, the reenactment of, of the uh, of God's faithfulness in seeing his people through those years of being in the wilderness. And part of the ceremony over those periods of days would include a time in which they would go and a great ceremony of people with the uh, priests and things. They'd go over to gather water in the um, um, springs in a particular location there in Jerusalem. They'd fill up these golden pitchers of water. They'd come back, and on the last day, they have a number of these pitchers, and they're pouring the water out ceremoniously all around the altar all around the, the area of worship there as celebrating God's faithfulness and providing for his people when they were desperate. And he was saying, I will give you what you need and satisfy you. And so Jesus takes that particular instance and he cries out in John chapter 7, beginning in verse 37. If any man is thirsty, let him come to me. And drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. But he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit had not yet given, Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now, notice a couple of key principles here we learn in this promise. There is no denying that the promise, you see it there, is so broad, right? Jesus offers to anyone who is thirsty and believes in him, he's offering to them soul satisfaction. Are you sitting here this morning? And you might be a person that says, well, yeah, I know a lot about the Holy Spirit in my mind. I can tell you about this, I can tell you about that, I know this, I know about the power the Spirit's supposed to give, you know all their stuff about theology, about the Spirit, but you've never actually 
come to Christ in a sense in which you've said, Lord Jesus, I am coming to you on your terms, admitting that I am desperately thirsty, I am longing for something I don't currently have and I desperately need, and I'm going to drink of you. I'm going to appropriate you in my life. I'm going to come and I'm going to personally surrender and invite you into my life and see you change my life. Now, some of you see me walking around. I have a water bottle with me often. When I, wherever I go, I carry it with me all the time. And because I had a kidney stone several years ago, I don't want another one. This is one of the best ways to prevent that. And so uh, if, imagine if, if, if you have a water bottle, I have a water bottle, and we're out on a hike. And it's a hot, humid day, and it's just bearing down. It's getting worse and worse, and we are famished. Now, at that point, I make the suggestion, listen, hey, guys, let's take this water, and let's pour it all over our arms, and pour it all over that arm, and pour it on your legs, and pour it maybe down your back. But let's not, let's not go overboard here, and you know, don't drink the water, just pour it over you, and that'll satisfy you. You'd look at me thinking, what are you, crazy? What if I said, well, let's take the bottle of water, just rub it on you like this. That'll satisfy that thirst of yours, right? You look at me like, you've lost your mind. Now, the point is, of course, obviously, if you're thirsty, you drink. You drink. I should have had it and take a swig. But anyway, you get the point. The point is, you'll never be satisfied your thirst if the water remains in the bottle. You have to drink it. In the same way, we can talk about the gift of the Holy Spirit. You can sit and listen to a sermon about the Holy Spirit. You can have people talk to you about Jesus. But there comes a time where you yourself have to engage with him personally. You need to drink of Christ. You need to trust him. Trust what he did for you on the cross. Trust him in his resurrection from the dead for you. And just like that trusting in him, it becomes a part of you. Christ becomes a part of you. When you consume water, it is fully a part of you. Jesus Christ invites us not to merely sip the salt water of religious activities, religious rituals. Why? Because salt water, if you're out in the ocean and you're really, really parched, you drink salt water, what's going to happen? You're you're even more thirsty, right? Because it's got salt in it. Same thing if you're relying on religious rituals and good works. That's not going to help you. It's going to make you thirstier. doesn't satisfy But there are some of us who are tempted to wet our tongues sometimes and to drink the water, I would call it the stagnant pond water of false teaching, of save yourself heresy, of the improve yourself and become a better person through human effort and human philosophy. That's not going to help you either. That's going to make you sick. What's the point? Jesus calls everyone who thirsts to personally guzzle the gospel of Jesus Christ. To ingest it, to drink it freely, to internalize making Christ your Lord and your Savior by faith. Only after you believe on Christ will He then give you His Holy Spirit. And only then will God's Spirit provide you with an ongoing satisfaction in your heart and in your soul. But first, you must come to Christ, fully relying on Him, 
fully trusting in Him, committing yourselves to Him. And then here comes the experience that, Paul, that Jesus is speaking of right here in this text, where you're, you're ongoing in a sustained way, finding your soul satisfied with your life in Christ. It's a life that brings inexhaustible joy and peace and hope in Jesus Christ. A life of blessing that will overflow into the lives of other people around you. It's inescapable. It's going to happen. Because when our hearts are filled up with a sense of the wonder of Jesus' love and Jesus' peace and goodness and grace and glory and mercy and holiness and wisdom, those things after a while you're like, i got to share this with somebody. I have to make a difference for Christ in somebody's life. And according to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, the more we stare at Christ, the more we gaze at Christ, the more we fill with wonder and amazement at Christ and the, the, the glories of who He is, the Spirit of God is going to make us more and more like Christ over time. And the gift of God's Spirit is going to bring about such a fullness and satisfaction that the abundance of God's grace is just going to overflow. That's the way God intends it. Have it flowing out of your life. It's never to be stored up in me or in you. It's, the Spirit's goal is to have us be involved in introducing others to Christ. To get interested in people beyond ourselves. To take an interest in the people around you. The gospel is meant to spill over from my heart and your heart of fullness into the hearts and lives of your family, your friends, your co-workers, your neighbors, your fellow students at school. Suppose this dynamic were to happen in our church in 2018. Suppose if everyone here today was to become this stream of overflowing grace and blessings and goodness that comes swelling, out of, just overflowing out of our hearts based on this incredible joy and, and the love of knowing Christ. And that then, among all of us, becomes a veritable river, a flood of blessing going outward in every direction. Imagine what that would look like. What a difference that would make. James Montgomery Boyce had such a helpful comment here at this point on this text when he reminds us of the illustration that Charles Spurgeon used back in the 1800s. Spurgeon compared this blessing that Jesus was talking about in John 7 to the phenomenon of the Thames River, which is that main river going through London. It's a tidal river, and so there are times when the tide's out and the river's down, and these massive barges would get stuck in the mud, the muck in the mud at the bottom of the river. Now you say, we got to move those barges. You could line up a hundred guys with a hundred ropes. You could line up teams and teams of horses to move those big barges. When they're stuck in the mud, you're wasting your time. But, he says, when you see the tide coming back in and the tide fills up that river and you see the, the, the level of the water now back up, those barges are floating. It would take two or three men to move a barge at that point so easily when the, when, the, when, the, when the actual barge is floating. What's the point here? Don't you long in your heart for a flood tide of God's grace 
to be lifting up and seeing things happen that otherwise would not be happening, humanly speaking? Do you know of boats that need to be floating? Do you know of people whose hearts need to be changed? Well, we all know people who don't serve Christ. They don't seem too concerned about the spiritual well-being of other people. We all know people who don't come to prayer meetings. They don't seem to have any interest or desire to witness. They need to be set afloat. Pray that God's Spirit will work in such a way through the gospel of Jesus Christ in such a a satisfying, a soul-satisfying way that it will begin to overflow their lives into the lives of other people that are around them. Oh, may God grant it. Not only for our sake as individuals, but for the sake of our families, for the sake of our church family, for the sake of our community, for the sake of the world, for the sake of God's glory. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would prevent it from happening today where we would come and hear a sermon on the Holy Spirit and we would not heed it. That we would somehow walk out of these doors grieving the Spirit of God, causing Him to mourn because of our stubbornness, our refusal to surrender, our lack of longing and desire to truly be yielded to you completely and entirely. Lord, I pray that you would bring to Christ any person who's here today who may have heard a lot about you over the years but has never truly come and drunk of Christ and tasted of Christ and fully gulped the the glories of the gospel personally themselves. I pray that even today, Lord, that would happen. And I pray for those of us, Lord, who have the gift of the Holy Spirit, and yet we need to see greater power at work in us. We need to see greater assurance in the midst of the storms and trials that we're going through. We need to see, Lord, you using us, spilling over the sense of blessedness and grace and, and, uh, and love of God coming out of our hearts and ministering to other people in ways in which we are mobilized and energized in ways that we've never seen before. Lord, would you bring that about? Would you begin to do a mighty work in us to raise up these barges so that they might be moving once again? Lord, open our mouths that we might gladly share your truth everywhere. Lord, we wait on you. Spirit of God, have your way among us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.